the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back following the sounds of silence, but Joel reminds me that we log that as a public service for time to time on this program. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the conversation. Wow, I mentioned at the start of the program what an amazing couple of years it has been. We have seen perhaps some of the most significant positive strides in the pro-life arena, certainly in my nearly 30 years of involvement with the pro-life movement. Joining us now to talk a bit about what's going on and give us an update is Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And and Brian, I, I, I never thought I'd see the day when I can say this, but here we are. We will... Tomorrow, unless a judge intervenes, tomorrow we will have the first state in the union that has no abortion clinics in it since 1973, as it has been handed down. Planned Parenthood will lose its license in St. Louis tomorrow. Amazing. Isn't it? It's really something. And I think what we're looking at, and it is significant, we're looking at the show me state and what we have with the abortion issue, and we always have to remember this, we build our laws on self-evident truths, and the right to life is the first of the self-evident truth. And so I'm very proud of the folks in Missouri, um, but this is what we're up against still, and that's Roe versus Wade. And Roe versus Wade is the exact opposite of self-evident truth. Uh, it has prohibited the state from legally going in to have laws to protect that child. So the fact that Missouri is doing this is really a reflection more on Planned Parenthood than anything else, because um, we have a situation that that Planned Parenthood has has gone too far. The abortion industry has gone too far. And we see that also in the uh, situation with the presidential candidates on the Democrat side. Every single one of them has said they want abortion throughout the pregnancy, throughout the pregnancy, and if necessary and the child survives, then it's all right to let that child die. And this is extraordinary until you realize they're describing what Roe versus Wade has allowed. And we've talked about that before. So the Roe regimen, that's Roe and the Doe v. Bolton, don't want to forget that. It's Doe v. Bolton that says not woman's life, but the health of the patient. And that health is defined any way the abortionist wants to. So it's an extraordinary moment. We're seeing common sense kind of getting attention, but... This fight is far from over. Well, to be sure, because at the end of the day, and let's talk about Louisiana for a moment, where there the Democratic governor has signed a strict abortion ban into law that prohibits abortions once a fetal heartbeat 
has been detected, and I think there's a, a, about eight or nine states now, maybe even higher than that, that have now passed such legislation. All of this, I think, pertains to the notion that the 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 pro-choice end of the equation, uh, they're they're seeing this as roll up the sleeves, time, get ready to do battle, and and no doubt there's going to be those that will come back and argue, wait a minute now, how can we, for example, in Missouri, see the last Planned Parenthood clinic, or in Louisiana, Louisiana, with the passage now and signing in the law of the fetal heartbeat bill, restrict abortion at that level when 73, we thought it had been decided by the U.S. Supreme Court that a woman under the so-called privacy rules um, had a right, quote-unquote, to choose what to do with her body. Is this necessarily pretending then to a, a battle that is going to make its way finally to the U.S. Supreme Court to once and for all revisit the Roe decision? It has to. And that's why we have to buckle our seatbelts in California. Uh, All of these states have got legislatures that are basically made up of of legislators that look to self-evident truth. California is looking to progressivism, which in essence at its heart says that truth is relative. And you have to progress towards it, and it's always changing. You can make it up as you go. You can make up the number of genders. You can do whatever you want. But we have a situation that Roe versus Wade will be confronted. All of these bills that were passed this summer are going to be challenged. They're one of them, and actually I think one of the bills that has preceded this, the uh, Born Alive Infant Protection Act, the um, nature of the... Uh, uh, fetal pain bill. These are bills that actually talked about Roe's more drastic aspect, late-term abortion. But whatever bill it is, once it takes down Roe, it's going to allow states to act more freely. And that's really the crime of Roe. It's twofold. One, that it dismisses the child's life. But secondly, it's prohibited the states from enacting laws like this. All right. Those so now the states have been emboldened. We're going to see which one it is that takes it down. And then, particularly in California, we're going to have an incredible battle because we're going to have to fight and get people involved in that process of getting good legislators to help pass laws that will at least give some recognition of that child. Let's talk a bit about the Supreme Court for a minute. We're obviously seeing a, a slow change of the face of the court. There have been two key appointments by President Trump to the Supreme Court that are both decidedly um, uh, historical constitutionalists, and we believe as such um, will will have a very different opinion of a, a Roe decision as opposed to the nine members of the High Court back in 1973. Uh, there's sometimes been concerns voiced about whether or not John Roberts could be problematic, but let me ask you this. Given the current makeup of the court and whether or not Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, is here a year from now or not, who knows? But given the current makeup of the court, are we poised for the best chance to see a reversal that we've ever been since 1973? Well, I hate to answer that. I know that's an unfair question, but I'm just curious. Yeah, I think it's very very precarious because you probably will recall— Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself wants to overturn Roe because she thinks it's too paternalistic. She wants the right to abortion. She doesn't want it on the basis of privacy. 
she wants it on the basis of gender. She is a radical feminist. And my concern is that with both her and with the chief justice on the court, uh, who we don't know where he goes, yeah. I would much prefer to have one more, one more solid vote on the court puts us in a much better position. Now, there was something so, that came out um, in, in a, a recent decision um, in the, the case of Box versus Planned Parenthood of Indiana uh, that I thought was extremely encouraging. Um, and that was an opinion written by Justice Clarence Thomas. And I know this is going to be music to the ears of everybody who has been a long-term listener to this program as we have down through the years educated people on not just the history of Planned Parenthood, but the racial attitudes of its founder, Margaret Sanger, and and the, 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 the Nazi-style tactics that have been used by Planned Parenthood going back almost a century, going back into the 1920s, and to see Justice Thomas write, and I'm quoting here, the use of abortion to achieve eugenic goals is not merely hypothetical. The foundations for legalizing abortion in America were laid during the early 20th century birth control movement. That movement... Pardon me, developed alongside the American eugenics movement and significantly Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger recognized the eugenic potential of her cause, emphasizing and embracing the notion that birth control, quote, opens the way to the eugenist, close quote. Wow, what a amazing opinion. And uh, to, to get that written by Justice Clarence Thomas, I thought was very exciting. Very powerful. Justice, Justice uh, Thomas has summed up what we've been saying about about Margaret Sanger. You know that actually Adolf Hitler quoted Margaret. Sanger. Oh yes. And and so this is this is very significant. But nevertheless, what we're going to have to look for is, from my point of view, we need another judge to really know that we're going to confirm this because it's the presence of Ginsburg that really has me rattled. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about it at length. But if you write, read her other writings, she wants Roe overturned, but she wants to come down with another type of abortion decision. We need judges that bring self-evident truth and say, this is a human baby. Let's go back to before Roe. Let's let states protect those people in their midst. Is this agenda by, by Ginsburg the fact that, as we've long argued, that the, the, the whole premise of Roe really teeters on questionable opinion, questionable law, so what you're suggesting is she wants to see an overturn of Roe, not because there's any pro-life uh, intentions behind it, but she would rather see it, uh, meaning abortion on demand, liberally and wide open, codified uh, under some other guise, so to speak. Right now it's wrapped up under this notion of right to privacy, but but rather codified by some other means, therefore giving it what, ultimately a far firmer, quote-unquote, legal foundation upon which to stand? Is is that the, the, the sort of reading between the lines here of what Ginsburg's uh, pushing for? She specifically has said what that foundation should be. As a good feminist, only women can have babies, so only babies should be free to to uh, kill them. Only women should be free to kill babies. Yeah, yeah. Under under Doe, it's entirely read Doe carefully. It's the opinion of the abortionist about the well being of the patient. He's the decision maker. The reason that's been significant is that the abortionist is the decision maker. You know this. I know people that have gotten up 
from the abortionist table because they weren't quite sure they wanted to go through with it. But it was the abortionist who makes the final decision. That's why a lot of times those other women are at the clinic. No, honey, you stay here. So it's not ultimately her decision in some ways. It's, it's the perpetrator's decision. But we digress. One of the things I'm concerned about is that our own friends think that the Supreme Court now is going. Now, once we have the right court, well, we'll just force our laws. And the, one of the elements of Roe v. Wade, when we get good judges, they are not going to ban abortion throughout the nation. That's not going to happen. It can't because the Supreme Court does not have that authority. That was why Roe was such a violation. It forced states to have this new legislation that Blackman wrote. When good judges do take action, that means states are going to have to pass laws. That's why I want to remind us as Californians, don't think our job is far away. Don't think our job is just to watch all this. You've got to work for good legislators. We've got to fight now to take California back. And that is what the court will do, is uphold the laws that the states will pass. So this is, this is the beginning of the, uh, it's the end of the beginning, as Churchill said. Once we get a shot at actually having Roe removed, then it means that states can start enacting laws again. And we've seen a whole raft of states that are ready. But the bottom line is, we need good judges that will overturn Roe, that will allow states to to protect babies. And again, uh, Ginsburg's not one of those. Ginsburg would like to take the Chief Justice with her. I would hope he would not go, but to somehow find some other basis for abortion. So this is an extraordinary time in our history. Common sense is getting more of an airing now in the public media, but still a, not, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of people don't understand what Roe is and how extreme it's been. And they've been trying to redefine it. Even even today, I was listening to the show. In fact, I was on One American News. Remember that? Oh, don't want to push other programs. But the fact is, is that is that people need to understand what Roe really does, how extreme it is. And even in California, when people realize there's abortion, late-term abortion, there needs to be no justification, no medical justification for those late-term abortions. Even Californians join us by a 70% margin. 70% of Californians don't want all abortions all the time for any reason. And that's a good sign. But it means we've got to do our job and explain to people what choice really is, what it really means. Any abortion at any time for any reason or no reason in particular. Well, that also means that we need to do a much, much better job at the ballot box as well, because while it's heartwarming to hear that there is a high percentile of Californians that do not favor this for just, you know, convenience, sex selection, what have you, uh, unfortunately, the people that are in Sacramento right now do not reflect that majority opinion of Californians. Uh, they are a, a, a small minority, and, and I guess that's fair to say, since there's only uh, between the the legislature and the Senate, uh, be the Assembly rather, and the Senate, there's only 120 of them. But at the end of the day, 120 people are are, are dictating uh, the abortion issue for 35, 40 million Californians. The vast percentile of which, 70%, do not believe that this ought to be used uh, late term and for every excuse under the book. In addition to being aware of that, let me get you to comment on something else. And I want to be 
guarded here because I don't want to get either one of us in trouble. I'm not trying to get anybody sued here. I want. I don't want to go too political. But to the degree to which you can common, uh, comment, uh, Brian Johnston is Brian Johnston, taxpayer and citizen. I found it interesting that a company that has promoted itself as being uh, family friendly and in the family entertainment business, speaking of course of Walt Disney, uh, has come out. This is a quote from the um, chief executive officer of the Walt Disney Company that says that it will now be, quote, very difficult for them to continue filming in the state of Georgia if a new restrictive abortion law there goes into effect. CEO Bob Iger saying that many people do not want to, quote, work in a state after it passed a law that bans abortions following the recent fetal heartbeat um, uh, decision there, vote there. Um, Wow. I mean, you know, all of a sudden now it's not practical for Disney to film Disney films in Georgia because of the state's position on abortion. I I was very much taken aback by that. It was stunning. And they're not the only one. There's quite a few. And that's part of how Hollywood works. It's incredibly peer-driven. And so once this demand started up, and you almost have to laugh if you saw the actress, her name escapes me, but um, who said she's going to go on sex strike. Um, well, I don't know how her husband feels about that, but uh, I'm not sure she's married. And if she's not, she should have been on sex strike, I believe. Uh, that's what the nature of marriage and children is about. But that's me talking with a little bit of, of objective reality there. No, the fact is these public demands are then put to the producers and to the business owners. And if they have a scintilla of support, they're asked to strike now. They have to make statements right now. And even if it's considered harmful, they may not get support in other quarters. Well, you know what? At the end of the day, Brian, that that, that statement making can and should go both ways then. And... uh you know, I'm I'm uh, not going to be the one to say let's get a boycott going. I'm just going to say, uh, as a believer, as a pro-life person, as one who values life, um, be mindful of such public positions. Uh, I didn't run into the boardroom, take notes, and then come out and report on what the CEO said. They sent out a press release telling people the company's position on the Georgia pro-life fetal heartbeat bill, stating that if it's signed by the governor, they won't want to do business in Georgia anymore. And maybe when you're making your entertainment choices and the next time you're headed down toward Anaheim, you want to keep that in mind. All right. Our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, for being with us on that segment of Lifeline. Um, in a Turning the corner here, and just before we get to traffic, in a, in a sudden spurt of generosity... <laughs> We're going to give away another pair of tickets. Uh, again, another set of tickets for Hillsong United. We'll be sending these out, by the way, I've just learned today via email. So you'll get it. You'll be, you know, printed out and all that good stuff. Caller number 11, tickets to see Hillsong United with Amanda Lindsay Cook and Matt Mac Brock. Monday, June the 3rd at Oracle Arena in Oakland. You'll hear all your favorite songs. And, of course, you get a chance to uh, enjoy a free pair of tickets, enjoy the concert. So if you can uh, be at the uh, Oracle Arena in Oakland Monday night, then uh, why not go on us, right? 
Caller number 11 wins tickets, 888-367-5329, 888-367-5329. By the way, reminder, and the contest rules are posted on our website, but if you won something within the last 30 days, you're not eligible. But if you haven't, then you go to the phone right now, 888-367-5329. Caller number 11 wins tickets to Hillsong coming to the Oakland Arena, I'm sorry, the Oracle Arena in Oakland, they keep changing names, uh, Monday, June the 3rd, 888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. For another chance to win, go to the fan club page at kfax.com. All right, traffic now for you from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, let's talk about some of the challenges when it comes to parenting and the whole issue of expectations. I think as parents, we all bring children into this world with a heartbeat, with a desire to want to see our kids successful. You know, we want the kid that will grow up to be uh, the doctor or the lawyer, and yet sometimes they grow up to be the artist. And in that comes a sense of disappointment we have as parents, then to beyond the notion of our ideals for our children not necessarily matching their ideas or their goals. And there's the sense oftentimes you hear of parents who try to live vicariously through their children. Yes, we want a better life for our kids. Sometimes we want our life or the life that we thought we should have had growing up ourselves for our kids. And then the frustrating level comes in when, as parents, we try to raise perfect little children and yet they turn out to be less than perfect. Is that a fault of less than perfect parenting? Let's find out as we are encouraged to, quite frankly, kind of uh, rethink our thinking and um, realize that we need to love our kids for who they are. We no more need to worry about perfect kids. Jill Savage is the co-author of this new book. And Jill, great to have you on the program. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Jarell, can't. Ah, there we are. Sorry about that. My headphone, for some reason, suddenly failed on me. (laughs) Jill, let's talk a little bit about first some of the ideals that parents bring into this job as parenting. You know, I I think the the notion that we want a better life for our kids. I mean, that that stands to reason. Um, Oftentimes, we want our see our kids grow up to uh, to have better opportunities or be more successful, either economically or or socioeconomically than than we were coming up as our kids, and yet suddenly. This goal toward creating these perfect little people can become very frustrating, not just for ourselves, but also for our kids. It really can. And you know what happens as parents is, um, you know, particularly uh, with that first child, uh, that child is, you know, either you're spending nine months uh, preparing for them, you know, as, as they're uh, growing in your, your belly or they're, you're preparing nine months, 12 months if you're adopting. And you are imagining what life is going to be like with them. You're imagining what they're going to be like. You're imagining what they're going to like and the things that you're going to do together. And that's all great. I mean, that's normal for parents to dream. But then we meet our real child. And all of a sudden, over time, as we get to know that child, often the imagined child doesn't match the real child. And so at some point, we really have to separate those out, and we have to embrace the real child that's in front of us 
who may not look anything like the imagined child. Uh, their, their likes, their dislikes, their abilities may not be anything <clears throat> like the imagined child. And so we have to be willing to embrace the real child standing in front of us, recognize they're going to be different than us, they're going to have different goals and different dreams and different talents, and uh, be able to lay that imagined child uh, to rest and really embrace your real child that's standing in front of you. And and that's uh, one piece of No More Perfect Kids that we look at is uh, really coming to grips and loving our real child. Is this an issue that a lot of parents struggle with, a sense of failure perhaps, because as as the child reaches a certain age, they, they, they compare the the imagined child with the reality of what is standing before them. And when one image doesn't match reality, do they get oftentimes get very depressed at the sense that I've somehow as a parent failed my child? Well, I think some of us uh, look at it through the lens of failure. I think uh, others of us look at, at it through the lens of disappointment. Uh, I think some of us look at it through the lens of uh, still trying to make the child into something that they're not really designed to be. And so we become more controlling and uh, demanding the, of, of the child. So I think there's a lot of different ways that uh, as parents we can respond to this. But the most important thing for us to do is to really study our child, get excited about the way that God has created them uniquely, it may be very different than the way he's created us. It might be somewhat different than the way that he's created us. It might even be somewhat similar. Who knows? Uh, one example, I have five children, and uh, four of my five children are musical, and so am I. So I was actually have a degree in music education, and, and so I, I loved that for my kids. I wanted that for them. Um, I was trained to, to play the piano classically. I can, you put a piece of music in front of me, I can play it. Uh, most of my kids play by ear. They don't want to mess with the music. They want to hear the music, and then they want to be able to sit down at the piano and do it themselves. I can't do that. My ear is not trained. I don't have that inclination, but they do. Now, it used to frustrate me because, honestly, they really struggled with lessons and learning the classical side of things because they wanted the freedom to be artists. And I was really frustrated with that until I realized that I was trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And I needed to let them be the musicians that they were, which is very different than the way I'm a musician. And you mentioned um, that this, it, this follows four of the five children. Now, what about the fifth child? <laughs> Well, the fifth child has absolutely no inclination towards music at all. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, and he had no, he took piano lessons for a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, it became very evident that it just wasn't his thing. Uh, he loves to work with his hands. He loves to build things. He loves to uh, run. And so those were, uh, you know, those were skills, talents that uh, I didn't share, but I had to embrace in him. And so, you know, after he did an obligatory year or two of piano, and we, we really studied him and said, you know what, this just isn't a good fit. 
then we had to let that go. There has and, to be some sense of surrendering here too then, doesn't there? I mean, in, in, in the sense that at the end of the day, what we want for them and what they want for themselves or the talent, skills, and abilities that God has, has entrusted to them may not be necessarily the ones on your list. You're right. So surrender is a piece of it. And the other thing that I think is important is sometimes we do have to grieve. Sometimes we actually have to grieve the imagined child or the imagined activities or the imagined way that we were going to interact with our children. We have to grieve that. Um, Maybe, you know, maybe your child doesn't share any of the same type of hobbies or interests that you have. And you always pictured that you would be able to do X together. And, And they don't even have any desire to do X. Uh, maybe you're dealing with a special needs child. Special needs parents really have to come to grips with this because that, you know, none of us imagine ourselves having a special needs child, a child that's handicapped in some way, uh, that has some physical or emotional or mental challenges. And so, uh, as parents, it could be as simple as our children just have different skills, gifts, talents, wiring, temperaments, personalities than us, and it could be something all the way on the other side of the spectrum uh, where, you know, a parent is dealing with a special needs child, and their life doesn't look anything like what they thought it would. I would suspect there's a big point of perspective here that parents need to be reminded of. I mean, this notion that when kids grow up to be an artist, when what you really wanted was, you know, a doctor or a lawyer in the family— uh, dealing with that disappointment and gaining some perspective on on really kind of the priorities here. We'll talk about that when we continue our conversation after a brief timeout. Jill Savage is with us, co-author of No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. We'll take a brief time out. Come back as we answer the question, okay, so when your little artist fails to be the doctor or lawyer that you wanted, what's God telling you on all this? That is this edition of Lifeline with Jill Savage continues. <laughs> And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Okay, here's the big question for you, parents, and that is simply this. Do your kids tend to get the most attention when they're in trouble? And what are you doing the rest of the time? Addressing that question, the book, No More Perfect Kids, Love Your Kids for Who They Are. Co-author Jill Savage is with us. And and Jill, what about that? I mean, I know that we live very busy lifestyles, and oftentimes both parents are working and we're running to and fro. We've got jobs to maintain. We have houses to to take care of, grocery shopping to do. Got to get the kids to uh, everything from band practice to soccer practice and everything in between. And then we we think we're giving our kids a lot of attention, but then the the real one-on-one attention seems in some cases to only really excel when they're in trouble. Uh, it's true, and I think it's an easy way, an easy place for us as parents to, to fall into. Uh, you know, the book is built around questions that each of our kids are asking deep inside their hearts. They're questions that we asked when we were kids. Uh, those questions are uh, simple questions like, um, do you like me? You know, that was one that that you mentioned a little bit earlier. But another question is, am I important to you? And uh, in today's uh, fast-paced life, 
oftentimes our kids are only getting our attention when they do something negative, when we're correcting them, and that doesn't tell them that they're important. And so I think we really have to, um, we have to, and, and also if our goal is to get to know our child, to study our child, uh, only, you know, interacting and knowing them when, when their behavior is negative is not going to help us explore. Uh, so we really need to spend time with our kids. We need to, to dig into to life with them. And, um, you know, we have a, a son that, are, the one that wasn't musical that I uh, was sharing earlier, he loves to run. And when he was in junior high, uh, we encouraged him to do cross country. And he actually, when he was in seventh grade, he won the, the state cross country meet. And so here he was, seventh grade, he was winning state. And in our minds, we're thinking, by the time he gets to high school, he is going to be one of the top runners and possibly have scholarship opportunities. So, of course, we encouraged him to keep going and keep going and keep running. And he hated it. He hated cross country. And we thought, why? Why? He loved to run, but why? Well, we spent some time digging into that. And, and instead of just correcting him and pushing him, uh, we, you know, just tried to have some very intentional conversations and really come to understand him. And it took us a while to dig it out of him and figure out what was at the heart of it. But here's the deal. He loved to run. He hated competition. Mm. This is where knowing our child and knowing their heart and, and having compassion and love and acceptance and perception, those are the uh, four antidotes to the perfection infection. So perception is that we're really perceiving or trying to perceive or paying attention to what's going on on the inside of our child's heart. How do we know, though, when to push and when not to push? Because there's another example out of the book that you share with uh, one of the four musical children whom you encouraged to take a semester of choir, and I understand that he went into that thing kicking and screaming all the way, and uh, a couple of days into it said, forget about it, I'm not going to do it, and all these fights, and you insisted he had to complete at least one semester, and slowly all of a sudden he's coming home and talking about new friends that he met in choir practice, and they're going to be traveling here to do this, and before you know it, uh, this became, as you suggested inside the book, one of the highlights of his scholastic career. So how do you know that delicate balance of, of when to push and when not to push? That is a great question, and it comes down to knowing your child. You, it comes down to paying attention to the little things. That same child, I also share a story in the book, that that same child wanted to play football when he was in sixth grade. And the only place you could do that was on a community team. And so we made arrangements for him. to, And we couldn't imagine. He didn't seem like the football type, but he wanted to play football. And so we uh, allowed him to do that, and he came home the first day uh, from practice, hated it. Uh, in tears, I don't want to go back. And we said, oh, my gosh, of course you're going back. You've wanted this, you know, for years, and uh, you're not, we're not raising a quitter. And so we sent him back the second time. He came back again in tears. I hate it. I don't want to do this anymore. Third day, same thing. By the fourth day, I noticed that he had actually bit his nails down to the quick. He, his nails were bleeding. This child was so emotionally uh, overwhelmed and distraught 
with the possibility of going to that football practice that I remember the day that my husband and I said, oh, my gosh, this is not worth it. This is not worth it. It's, it is stressing him out in a way that is unhealthy. And we actually allowed him to quit. So then several years later, of course, when we required him to take the music class that he didn't want to take, uh, we didn't see that same kind of stress. We saw his will, and he was not happy that we were requiring him to take choir. Um, but you know what? He eventually... Uh, grew to love it, and we thought that that would be the situation. So I think it comes down to paying attention to your child, really knowing them, and we could have just kept pushing him to do that football, and who knows where we would have been with him emotionally uh, because it was obviously stressing him out in, to, a, to a place that was actually unhealthy. So I think it comes down to really paying attention to the little things, to what's going on on the inside, uh, to having those conversations. You know, our kids tend to like to talk at bedtime. And for parents, most of us are like, I want to just tell you good night, kiss you good night, and go to bed because I'm done. You know? Yeah. <laughs> We're just done you. at that moment in time. And that's a lot of times when we get to hear our kids' heart or they'll share something. And so we have to, we have to make ourselves available for those conversations and know our child and pay attention to those little things that often give us a clue to what's going on with them. And it comes back to such an important point of balance, as we've discussed, I think, throughout our visit today. And and you mentioned this in the book. Parents, we have to be mindful that our kids are created first and foremost. They They may look like us in the mirror, but at the end of the day, they're created in God's image, not our own. And we know that God has no stepchildren and that he has a unique individual plan and calling on each and every one of our lives. And what you want for your child, as wonderful and altruistic as it may be, may not necessarily be what God wants for your child. And so um, learning to know what the purpose and calling us of their, is on their life, allowing them to experience failure, correcting them without criticizing them, getting to know your kids, uh, particularly as, as you point out, Jill, the difference that it makes when we know as a parent when we should push and when not to push can make all the difference between um, – not creating maybe or raising perfect kids, but certainly happy and successful children. And that, I think, at the end of the day, is the most important thing. It is. It really is. And I think the more uh, we get to know our children, and then as they get older, it's also important for them to get to know us and uh, for them to know that our failures, our struggles, and because at, at at some point they need to know we're not perfect either, Life is hard. We all have struggles. We all have things that we have to work through. Uh, Failure is a normal part of this living experience. And so the more we help our kids know that those are normal things in their life because they're normal things in our life, that also gives them permission to not try to be perfect, but to embrace what I call the perfecting process that God has all of us in. Because we mature best through our failures, through our struggles, through coming to know ourselves. Yeah, and, and that, that's the perfecting process. Indeed so. And, and, of course, that perfecting process is one that God largely works out. And so at the end of the day, parents, you can have a deep sigh of relief here. No more perfect kids. 
just loving our kids or who they are. The new book, by the way, you'll find it at uh, bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Amazon.com has it as well. It's published by Moody and uh, our guest today, the co-author, Jill Savage. Information, too, on Jill's website at jillsavage.org. That's Jill, J-I-L-L, Jill Savage. Org. And our thanks to Arthur and Jill Savage for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.